Similarly, the Apostle Paul, also speaking of the Jews nationally, said that the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost, 1 Thessalonians 2.16, which again leaves no room for a revival of Judaism nor for a Jewish era of any kind. But it does leave room for the conversion of Jews as individuals along with individuals from all other national groups, even for the large majority of individuals within these groups as the church progresses in the world. Judaism as a legitimate religious system was brought to its full end and abolished by the crucifixion of Christ, not merely because the nation acting officially through its Sanhedrin rejected the Messiah, but because God's purpose with it was finished. With the establishment of the Christian church, Judaism should have made a smooth and willing transition into Christianity and should thereby have disappeared as the flower falls away before the developing fruit. Its continued existence as a bitter rival and enemy of the Christian church after the time of Christ, and particularly its revival after the judgment of God had fallen on it so heavily in the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersal of the people in 70 A.D., was sinful. No divine favor could rest upon such a movement, but only divine disfavor such as it indeed has suffered through the centuries. Bitter persecution of any Jews who accepted Christianity became a characteristic and distinguished mark of this revived Judaism as it followed the traditions of the Pharisees and Sadducees who had opposed Christ so bitterly during the days of his flesh. Jews who became Christians, thus ostracized from their fellow Jews, tended to merge into the Gentile communities in which they found themselves which was the natural and providentially appointed thing for them to do. Revived Judaism made it extremely hard to reach individual Jews with the gospel. In a broader treatment of this whole subject, Dr. Albertus Peters, in a book entitled The Seed of Abraham, has shown very conclusively that the Christian church is the legitimate heir and successor of Old Testament Israel, and that the Old Testament prophecies and promises so far as they remain unfulfilled, are to be fulfilled not to the Jews as a national group, but to the church, which is the New Testament Israel. Furthermore, this revived Judaism built again the middle wall of partition and so made it possible to perpetrate through the centuries the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The continuance of this bitterly anti-Christian racial group has brought no good to themselves, and there has been strife and antagonism in practically every nation where they have gone. They have not been a happy people. One need only think of the pogroms in Russia, the ghettos in Eastern Europe, the many restrictions and persecutions that they have suffered in Italy, Spain, Poland, and other countries, and in our own day the campaign of extermination waged against them in Germany by Hitler. At the present time we see this problem in a particularly aggravated form in the Near East, where the recently established nation of Israel has ruthlessly displaced an Arab population and seeks to expand further into the surrounding regions. Some 900,000 Arabs in refugee camps around the borders of Israel being one of the chief continuing causes for bitterness. There a nation of less than 2 million Jews is surrounded by a solid block of Arab nations with a population of some 40 million. Israel is not a self-sustaining nation and her existence to date has been heavily subsidized by American money and equipment, much of it undoubtedly 
having been given for the purpose of influencing the Jewish vote in this country. There is no indication that the age-old rivalry between Jew and Arab can be settled in the foreseeable future. Indeed, on several occasions, it has seemed that World War III might easily be triggered by a rash or provocative act either by Israel or some Arab state, such as Israel's invasion of Egypt in 1956. The mere fact that these people are Jews does not in itself give them any more moral or legal right to Palestine than to the United States or any other part of the world. This does not mean, of course, that the Arabs are any less anti-Christian or any less inclined toward provocative acts than are the Jews. But the fact of the matter is that the existence of Israel as a nation and its support by the West has done more than all other causes combined to alienate the Arab world with its rich resources of oil and to drive it toward the Russian sphere of influence. An illustration of the role that the Jewish people might have played in uplifting and leavening all other nations of the world in accordance with their divine mission and with great credit to themselves may be seen in the blending of nationalities that went into the formation of our own American nation as English, Scotch, Irish, Germans, French, Hollanders, Swedes, Norwegians, Italians, Spaniards and others came across the Atlantic forgot their old racisms and languages and peculiarities, and uniting in a common cause, formed this new nation which became quite different from any of the others, a strong, progressive, rich nation with freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, and many other virtues, in which perhaps with pardonable pride we do not hesitate to say that we prefer to be a part rather than in any other nation of the world. The present writer finds four of the above-mentioned nationalities represented in his family tree and proudly acknowledges each of them. Even if it were possible, not many Americans would be willing to exchange what they believe to be their typical American personality for that typical of any other country from which their ancestors came. This illustrates to some extent the valuable contribution that the Jewish people might have rendered to the world at large had they been willing with the greatest of all assets in their possession, the true religion. But that they refuse to do. Rather, they have chosen to set themselves apart in the strongest opposition to the true religion, and the results have been tragic, both for themselves and for the world at large. And now to return to the subject of Old Testament prophecy and promises and their bearing on the present and future state of the Jews. Dispensationalism holds that the promises were given expressly to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. See Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 and that they must therefore be fulfilled to the people of Israel and Judah. Dr. Peters has replied to this in considerable detail and with the most penetrating analysis of the whole problem that we have seen anywhere. He says, This is entirely correct and it is to the house of Israel that the fulfillment came. The objection arises from the failure to perceive that the Christian church in its origin was an Israelitish body, fully qualified to claim the promises of Israel. Dr. A. M. Burkhoff speaks of the church from among the Gentiles, but there is no such church. The Christian church, once having been established, many Gentiles came into it, but that did not make it a church from among the Gentiles any more 
then the naturalization of many Italians in our country makes it a nation from among the Italians. To make clear how thoroughly the Christian church in its origin was an Israelitish body, let us go back in thought to what happened when Jesus Christ came into the world. He presented himself as the promised king of the seed of David. Although the rulers of the people rejected Christ, they were supported therein by a majority of the rank and file. There were some who did accept him. They were but a little flock, but to them it was said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12:32. Did those who thus accepted Christ thereby lose their standing and rights as the seed of Abraham, the covenant people of God? God forbid. On the contrary, little flock as they were, those who accepted the Son of God as King of Israel continued without interruption to be what they were before the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the legitimate heirs to all that God had promised. That they were few in number makes no difference. If anything, it confirms their title. For St. Paul says, Isaiah crieth concerning Israel, If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. Romans 9.27 You cannot object that these believers in Christ were from among the Gentiles. They were not. They were all Israelite members of the old covenant people of God to whom the promise had been made. Strictly in line with the promise and with the prevailing principle of the covenant history, to them, the believing remnant, the promise of the new covenant was fulfilled. That promise was to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and to the designated parties the fulfillment came. To all who were, in the sight of God and according to a just interpretation of history, still worthy of the name Israel and Judah. What of the others? Is it not clear that those who refused to acknowledge the king whom God had sent to them and to enter the new covenant which he had promised, by that very act lost their standing as the people of God and were cut off from the seed of Abraham? In what covenant relation could they still stand to God? The old covenant was gone, done away in Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.14, and in the new covenant they had no part. Just as it would have been impossible for any Israelite to refuse God's offer in the Sinaitic covenant and still retain his standing and rights under the Abrahamic covenant, so it was equally impossible for those under the Sinaitic covenant to refuse to accept the new covenant in Christ and still retain their standing and privileges as the seed of Abraham. There is always but one group that is recognized by God as being the seed of Abraham, the community with which he is in covenant. And that group, after the rejection of Jesus by the rulers and the majority of the old covenant Israel, was the remnant with whom he set up the new covenant in his blood. The Lord then disposed the unfaithful rulers of Israel and appointed the apostles as the new head of the covenant people. Matthew 21, verses 43 through 45, and chapter 19, verse 28. Do I say these things by my own authority, or does the word of God also say them? Listen. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you, and it shall be given to a nation bringing forth the fruit thereof. Matthew 21, 43. These words are the words of Jesus, 
after having spoken the parable of the wicked husbandman, which the rulers rightly understood to refer to themselves. Now what did those wicked men have of the kingdom of God that could be taken away from them? Only this, that they were the visible people of God, the seed of Abraham under the Abrahamic and Sinaitic covenants. This was to be taken away. Exactly similar is St. Paul's teaching under the figure of the olive tree in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. From this tree he says, certain branches have been cut off. Here the tree represents the seed of Abraham, the continuing covenanted people of God. From it those who refused to accept Christ and enter the new covenant had been cut off. They were no longer of the seed of Abraham in the covenant sense. Certain other branches, however, were not cut off because they accepted the mediator of the new covenant and the new covenant which he came to bring. Did not these now constitute the tree, the seed of Abraham, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah? Later, some years later, other branches were grafted in, but this did not in the least alter the standing of those branches that had never been cut off. With these, the Lord established the new covenant, according to the promise in Jeremiah, and constituted the Lord's Supper as its feast. This new covenant Israel is therefore identical with the Christian church. In all this, are we spiritualizing the prophecy, as some allege? Not at all. We are stating an historical fact, clearly contained in the sacred records, that in or about the spring of the year 30 A.D., the mass of those who then called themselves Israelites ceased to be such for prophetic and covenant purposes, having forfeited their citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel by refusing to accept the Messiah, and that after this event all the privileges of the Abrahamic covenant and all the promises of God belonged to the believing remnant and to them only, which remnant was therefore and thereafter the true Israel and Judah, the seed of Abraham, the Christian church. Thus the promise was fulfilled strictly and definitely to the designated parties. This means that the visible church is involved in the whole transaction. Before that, the Israelites were altogether the visible people of God. To that visible people, the new covenant has been promised, and to that same visible people, it must needs be fulfilled. Note that, as already remarked, this new covenant was established, was promised, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and with no one else, distinctly not with any Gentiles. For the first ten or twenty years very few Gentiles came in, and when they began to come in through the work of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, the new covenant Israel was well established and a going concern. Their coming in made no difference in the new covenant, but it did make a difference in the status of those who came in. Before that, they had been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promises. One promise, three covenants. But after they had come in, they were no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being henceforth fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 2 verses 11 and 19 and chapter 3 verse 6 A quote from the Seed of Abraham pages 71 to 77 
There is a little known prophecy in Leviticus 26 verses 27 through 33 in which God speaking through Moses says that if after being punished for her sins Israel does not repent her punishment will be increased seven times longer. It apparently was with this warning in mind that Daniel gave the remarkable prophecy of the 70 weeks which generally are understood to mean weeks of years seven times seventy or four hundred and ninety years chapter nine verses twenty four to twenty seven Daniel was the prophet with the exiles in Babylon at the end of the seventy years exile that had been foretold by Jeremiah chapter twenty five verses eleven and twelve and chapter twenty nine verse ten when he understood from the scriptures that the seventy years were at an end Daniel 9 verse 2 he earnestly besought God for the deliverance of his people however Israel as a nation did not repent as a result of the Babylonian captivity only a small remnant had faith enough to return to Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah and the Jews who were reestablished in Palestine had only a very precarious existence successively under Persian Greek and Roman rule and were under such kings or governors as Antiochus Epiphanes Herod and Pilate until the coming of Christ Daniel's prophecy we believe was fulfilled in the later history of Israel extending from that time until the coming of the Messiah the accomplishment of his work of redemption on Calvary and ending in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem extending even unto the full end Daniel 9.27 of the role assigned to Israel in the divine plan it may seem harsh to say that God is through with the Jews but the fact of the matter is that he is through with them as a unified national group having anything more to do with the evangelization of the world that mission has been taken from them and given to the Christian church Matthew 21.43 for the past 19 centuries the church has been the trustee of the gospel preserving, studying and purifying its text and proclaiming its message to the world by means of the printed page and through the preaching of its ministers and missionaries Jewish opposition to the church began to be felt very early the apostles themselves being the objects of it Paul's words regarding his own countrymen show to what an extent it had affected his ministry for he said that they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out us and please not God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always but the wrath of God is come upon them to the uttermost that is as long as they remain in Judaism 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 15 and 16 and these apparently are the ones that John had in mind when in the message to the church at Smyrna we read I know thy tribulation and thy poverty but thou art rich and the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and they are not but are a synagogue of Satan and in the message to the church in Philadelphia behold I give of the synagogue of Satan of them that say they are Jews and they are not but do lie Revelation 2 verse 9 and 3 verse 9 for individual Jews yes the way is open as it has always been nothing has been taken from them no impediment has been placed in their way many have become true Christians these are the natural branches 
who again are grafted into their own olive tree. Romans 11:24. They are the remnant of the fleshly Israel that is to be saved. Romans 9:27. And it is these individuals, not Israel in a national capacity, who are to undergo conversion. It was these that Paul had in mind when he wrote, Now if their fall is the riches of the world, and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Romans 11 verses 12 and 15 There are no other people we believe who when they are converted and turned to the Messiah are more appreciative or more zealous for the faith than are the Jews. They seem to have a particularly deep religious nature. It was indeed not without reason that God chose the Hebrew race as the channel through which his revelation should be given to the world. During Old Testament times, the nation of Israel, despite its frequent lapses into apostasy, had a glorious history far surpassing that of any other people. The remarkable line of the prophets and other great men and the moral and spiritual grandeur of their writings produced under divine inspiration are immeasurably superior to anything found in any other nation. But that glory is in the past. With the fulfillment and passing away of the old covenant and the institution of the new, the special mission of the Jews in the divine plan was at an end. With the establishment of the new covenant, a new principle was involved and a new method of procedure was established with everything dependent on Christ, of whom it was said that he should be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. Luke 2:32. Would that the Jews could see that Christ is the glory of his people, Israel, that they might turn to him in wholehearted trust and obedience. This does not mean, of course, that the Jews will never go back to Palestine, as indeed some of them have already established the nation of Israel, a little less than two million, out of an estimated world Jewish population of twelve million, now being in that country. But it does mean that as any of them go back, they do so entirely on their own, apart from any covenanted purpose to that end, and entirely outside of scripture prophecy. No scriptural blessing is promised for a project of that kind. The prophecies that premillennialists point to as indicating a return of the Jews to Palestine are found in the Old Testament and either were given before the return from the Babylonian captivity and so were fulfilled by that event or, as in the case of Zechariah 8, verses 7 and 8, were given while that return still was in process it having occurred over a period of years. It is particularly significant that no New Testament writer mentions a future return for the very obvious reason that the return of which the prophet spoke was behind them. Had such a return been still future, their failure to mention it would have been inexcusable. It may be that in years to come the Jews will possess a larger part or even all of Palestine. We do not know. But if they do, they will secure it as other nations secure property through negotiation or purchase or conquest, not by virtue of any as yet unfulfilled prophecies or promises. There are no such prophecies or promises. 
In the meantime, premillennialism must bear part of the responsibility for the evil and dangerous situation that has arisen in the Middle East, since it has encouraged the Jews to believe that they are the rightful owners of that land, and that it is divinely ordained that they are again to possess it, not merely the small portion that they now occupy, but all of Palestine and great areas of the surrounding territory from the Euphrates River to the border of Egypt. Inherent in the dispensational system is the idea that the Jews bear some special relationship to God so that they are in themselves a people favored above all others in the world, that they are to be blessed for their own sake and because they are Jews. Dr. Ladd, a premillennialist but not a dispensationalist, says concerning dispensationalism, The heart of the system is not seven dispensations, nor a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. It is the notion that God has two peoples, Israel and the church, and two programs, a theocratic program for Israel and a redemptive program for the church. Israel is a national people with material blessings and an earthly destiny. The church is a universal people with spiritual blessings and a heavenly destiny. A quote in an article in Christianity Today, October 12, 1959. To that we would simply add that with the coming of the Messiah, God's purpose with Israel as a nation was accomplished and their mission as a separate people was at an end. We want to call particular attention to the fact that the priesthood, as well as the sacrificial system, the ritual, the temple, the Jews as a separate people, and the land as a divinely appointed possession of the Jews, has served its purpose and has passed away. In the epistle to the Hebrews we read that Christ, through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption and that he has offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Chapter 9, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 12. The chief function and privilege of a priest is that he has access to God. Under the New Testament dispensation of grace, all believers have that privilege. The rending of the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies at the time of the crucifixion, having symbolized that the way of access to God is now open to all. The Apostle Peter, writing to the members of the Christian church who are scattered abroad, said, But ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 And in Revelation 1.6, John says that Christ made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and Father. Hence the New Testament teaches the universal priesthood of believers, in that all believers now have direct access to God. Christ alone is our true priest. The special order of priests, such as functioned in Old Testament times, has been abolished forever. An enlightening article in the Chicago Lutheran Theological Seminary Record, July 1952, somewhat abbreviated, has this to say about the priesthood. The writers of the New Testament had two separate words for elder and priest. They do not mean the same thing at all, and the New Testament never confuses them. It never says presbyteros, elder, when it means priest. The New Testament word for priest is hierius. In Greek, from Homer down, this word had a single, unambiguous meaning. 
It meant a man appointed or consecrated or otherwise endowed with power to perform certain technical functions of ritual worship, especially to offer acceptable sacrifices and to make effectual prayers. Likewise, in the Septuagint, Hyereus is the regular, if not invariable, translation of the Old Testament Kohen or Kahan, the only Hebrew word for priest. It occurs more than 400 times in the Old Testament in this sense. In the New Testament, Hyereus always means priest, never means elder. There is not anywhere in the New Testament the shadow of an allusion to a Christian priest in the ordinary sense of the word, that is, a man qualified as over against others not qualified for the special functions of offering sacrifice, making priestly intercessions, or performing any other act which only a priest can offer. The epistle to the Hebrews attributes both priesthood and high priesthood to Christ and to him alone. The argument of the epistle not only indicates that a Christian priesthood was unknown to the writer, but that such a priesthood is unallowable. It is to Jesus only that Christians look as to a priest. He has performed perfectly and permanently the functions of a priest for all believers. His priesthood, being perfect and eternal, renders a continuous human priesthood both needless and anachronistic. Consequently, we reject all merely human and earthly priests, whether in the Roman Catholic Church or in heathen religions, and look upon the continuation of a human priesthood as simply an attempt to usurp divine authority. Chapter 16, page 324, Date Setting The business of date setting seems to have a fatal fascination for premillennial writers, and practically all of them engage in it to some extent. There is scarcely a premillennial book that fails to record the conviction of the writer that the time for the return of Christ is near. However, they have profited by the experience of early writers, at least to some extent, that nowadays they seldom set exact dates, but only say that the Lord's coming is near, without attempting to say how near. But the setting of an approximate date is the same in principle as exact date setting, and makes it evident that those who do it would fix the exact year and day if they could, or dared. The early disciples inherited from Judaism the idea of an earthly kingdom, which they assumed would be soon set up. They had expected it during the time of Christ's public ministry. After his death, some of the early Christians, perhaps the majority of them, still clung to the hope that he would return speedily and set up an earthly kingdom. As Jesus was leading the disciples out to the Mount of Olives shortly before his ascension, they asked wistfully, Lord, dost thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1.6 But he replied, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father hath set within his own authority. Verse 7 To those who on one occasion during his public ministry supposed that the kingdom of God was immediately to appear, Luke 19 verse 11, he gave the parable of the pounds in which a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Verse 12 A project which normally would require a considerable amount of time and the date of whose return therefore would be very uncertain. He also gave the parable of the talents in which after a long time the Lord of those servants returned to make a reckoning with them. 
Matthew 25:19. In the Olivet Discourse, in response to the question of the disciples, What shall be the sign of thy coming? Matthew 24, verse 3, he said, But of that day and hour knoweth no one, not even the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. Watch therefore, for ye know not on what day your Lord cometh. Therefore be ye also ready, for in an hour that ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Matthew 24, verses 36, 42, and 44. And again, But take heed to yourselves, lest happily your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly as a snare. For so shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the earth. Luke 21 verses 34 and 35 In these verses we are told that the time of the second coming is unknown not only to mortal man and immortal angels, but that in his human nature it was unknown even to Christ himself. Hence let us not be so presumptuous as to know what Christ himself did not know when he was on earth. Much supernatural knowledge was revealed to him during his earthly ministry, but the time of his second coming was in reality in the far distant future and had no immediate bearing on his work of atonement. Hence he did not seek that knowledge and it was not revealed to him. Moreover, we are told that his coming not only will be at a time that is unknown, but that it will be at a time when Christians generally do not expect it. Hence, all attempts to set a date for the second coming are both futile and unscriptural. It should be clear that when Christ said, I come quickly, Revelation 22 verse 20, he did not mean that he was coming soon, as is shown by the long time that has elapsed since. Hence he must have had reference to one of two things. One, the manner of his coming as sudden, without warning. Or two, his coming for his loved ones at the time of their death. Either of these is a possible interpretation. But to hold that he encouraged his people to look for his final coming within their lifetime is not permissible. For that would have meant that he was encouraging a false hope. The Apostle Paul did not set dates for the Lord's return, not even an approximate date. When the expectation of an earthly return came to a climax in the Thessalonian church and some neglected their daily work because they believed the Lord's return was so near, Paul wrote his second epistle to correct that belief and his injunction was to go back to work. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2 and chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. He certainly did not believe in an any-moment rapture, for in this same epistle he wrote that the falling away and the man of sin must first come before the world could come to an end. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 Those events did not occur during his lifetime, hence he could not at any time have expected the return in the near future. In his later life he knew that his death would occur before certain other events, for he said to the elders from Ephesus, I know that after my departure, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Acts 20, 29. And to his faithful companion Timothy he wrote, For I am already being offered, and the time of my departure is come. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. In his epistle to the Romans, he displayed a truly long-range historical perspective when he wrote, 
a hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Chapter 11, verse 25 How appropriate are these words of Jesus and Paul for our day when many pry curiously into the unrevealed and even forbidden things of the future, into the times and seasons which the Father hath set within his own authority, and then announce with great positiveness, if not the exact date, at least the approximate date of the Lord's return, which almost always is said to be in the near future. In spite of these plain warnings, many have attempted to lift the veil that God has left over large portions of the future. Premillennialism, particularly in its dispensational form, goes far in its attempt to satisfy the longing desire of man to peer through that veil, and, of course, such practice cannot but meet with a degree of popularity. Multitudes in an air of expectancy stand in awe and admiration of the seer who claims special skill in the art of rightly dividing the word of truth, and who with great positiveness and assurance announces his insight into the subject of prophecy. Needless to say, the myriad predictions, whether fixing the exact or approximate date, that have had their issue have all failed. But that does not deter the present-day date-setters, except that they are more inclined to venture only approximate dates, such as in the near future, near at hand, during this generation, etc. It is, however, not a mark of superior wisdom or piety to try to unravel the secret of the time of Christ's coming. It is rather a form of presumption and shows the unscripturalness of those who endeavor to fix such dates. If that date could be established, the dispensationalists would have quite an exact timetable for all of the remaining events, seven years from the rapture to the revelation, which evidently could be pinpointed to the day and hour, to be followed by an exact 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom, Satan to be bound at the beginning and to be loosed for a little while at the end, this to be followed by the resurrection and judgment of the wicked, and entrance into the eternal state. But that the first century premillennialists, Chilius, as they were then called, and all others up to the present time who have taught the imminent return of Christ, and who saw signs which to them were convincing, have been wrong, seems to have practically no deterrent effect on the present-day prophets. Surely the passing of sixty or more generations of mistaken premillennialists should be sufficient to convince them that they have misunderstood the scripture somewhere. The following illustration should make clear the fallacy of the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. Suppose a passenger is waiting at the station for a certain train. He is told by the agent that his train is imminent. Nineteen trains far apart in time pass the station, but his train still has not arrived. Did the agent tell a falsehood, or has his train really been imminent all that time? We think it is a misuse of words to say that his train was imminent at any of those earlier periods. Nineteen centuries have passed since the first advent of Christ, and his second advent has not occurred yet. Quite clearly, he could not have represented his return as imminent, or he would have been giving false information. Probably no other group ever was so confident or preached more aggressively the imminent return of Christ than did the so-called Plymouth Brethren, 
among whom dispensationalism came into prominence some 130 years ago. They were very sure that Christ would return within their lifetime. Time proved them wrong by a wide margin, but their successors continue almost as aggressively as they did to point out signs which they say indicate that the end is near. Recently we heard a prominent dispensationalist speaking over the radio who went so far as to say that the return might occur even before the broadcast was over. But it didn't. Another prominent dispensationalist speaking over the radio said that the establishment of the nation of Israel in Palestine, which occurred on May 14, 1948, was the budding of the fig tree and that since we are told that the generation living at the time of the budding of the fig tree shall not pass away until all these things be accomplished, the Lord is sure to return within 40 years from that date. See Matthew 24 verses 32 to 34. He went on to say that the return was more likely to occur in the first half of that period than in the second half. Much harm has been done and discredit has been brought upon the precious truth of the second coming by such foolishness. Insofar as the first century Christians looked for the return of Christ in their generation, they were merely reading their wishes into their theology. Their vision of God's redemptive purpose was much too limited. Time has now extended 19 centuries beyond their horizon and has shown that God was working out a redemptive plan that was far larger and grander than anything that they ever dreamed of. It may yet be shown that he is also working out a far larger and grander redemptive plan than present-day premillennialists realize. Invariably, his plans have been larger than ours. Dr. Augustus H. Strong has said, We discern a striking parallel between the predictions of Christ's first and the predictions of his second advent. In both cases, the event was more distant and more grand than those imagined to whom the prophecies first came. The fact that every age since Christ ascended has had its chilliest and second adventists should turn our thoughts away from curious and fruitless prying into the time of Christ's return and set us at immediate and constant endeavor to be ready at whatever hour he may appear. A quote from Systematic Theology, page 1007. And Dr. Peters has the following to say concerning a similar problem of those who attempt to trace the details of church history through the book of Revelation, assigning dates, wars, empires, military leaders, etc., to this or that vision. All such schemes rest on the assumption that the book of church history is well-nigh closed. Almost of necessity, every writer who attempts to draw up such a scheme places himself at the very end, in the period of Laodicea. A man must rank his own age well on toward the end, otherwise he cannot attempt to make such a division. Yet how do we know that we are near the end? It is easy to point to many things that seem to be signs of the times and to predict an early return of Christ, but believers have done the same thing in every age since the ascension, and usually with quite as good reason as can be assigned today. They were wrong. How can we be sure we are right? If the world stands for another thousand years, or two, or three, will not our divisions into periods look foolish? We cannot know, 
and where we do not know, let us be silent. A quote from Studies in the Revelation of St. John, page 100. The final refutation of early premillennialism was given by the great theologian of the West, Augustine. He died in 430 A.D., and so thoroughly did he do his work that it did not again gain a prominent position until a thousand years later, following the Protestant Reformation. Since we cannot know the time of Christ's coming, we are to be always ready and always watchful. If men knew that the time of his coming was far off, they would tend to become careless and indifferent about moral and spiritual values. On the other hand, if they knew that the time was very near, they would become frenzied and excited and neglect their assigned work. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.